preaching, preaching text for this morning is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be, with the, will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as Mike comes to bring the word this morning, uh, won't you join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord, we thank you that your word is indeed alive and active and always going forth. We pray it would go forth into our hearts and our minds uh, and find good soil. So Lord, would you bless Mike, your servant, would you bless your word to us today? And I pray that the words of Mike's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 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 Thanks, Mike. Welcome. Thank you, Clint. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sydney and the team. My daughter's name Sydney, so I'm not going to forget her name in a hurry. <laughs> Greetings from uh, Laidlaw College, where I work and, uh, and work now with, with Clint. So thank you for sharing him with us. Uh, it's really valuable to us. And greetings also from Albany Baptist Church, where I'm from, where my wife is the senior pastor, so they've just finished their service, so she will be collecting up pieces of paper and putting Bibles away and doing all that stuff as everyone is now gone, and so uh, greetings from both those places. Um, heaven is what I'm talking about today. Uh, it's a wonderful topic to talk about. love to go around the place talking about this. People ask me what's my favorite text, and I answer, honestly, whatever I'm preaching on this coming Sunday. So my favorite text is Revelation and, and what Clint read, yeah. Um, and so I can't possibly do in the next few minutes uh, what we need to do to do justice to the topic of heaven. So I wrote a book. It's $25. Uh, it's available online. <laughs> I normally bring copies with me, but I've, I've actually sold out. But there's a flyer in the foyer. If you are interested, uh, please take a foyer. tells you how to buy it at all good bookshops online. Uh, answers all your questions. doesn't, but, you know, <laughs> tries to. What I actually do in that book is I ask kids. I ask a whole lot of children their questions, and they got the best questions because they're not embarrassed about any of them and the questions that adults are asking. And so I wrote it to resource uh, us big people uh, to have conversations, not just with children, but with each other that's informed, biblically and theologically informed. So in the next half hour, uh, someone has likened uh, this, uh, my, my preaching in this mode at least to trying to take a drink out of a fire hydrant, so good luck. Um, and I have to make up for 10 years of preaching that Clint didn't do about heaven. So, you know, here we go. Uh, We'll have a bit of fun along the way, and you'll get used to uh, 
part of my sarcastic humour might, you know, you, you might forgive me for that. Hey, hey people, uh, years ago, now I, I watched a movie on Netflix, my wife and I, we sat down one afternoon and it was Swedish or Norwegian, Finnish, I don't know, what's the difference? And it was that, I don't know what genre it was, but hideously bleak might fit. Uh, first scene, nothing happened. Oh, it's character driven, you know, got to stay the course. Second, third, fourth scene, nothing, nothing's happening. Uh, we invest an hour of our lives into this. Everyone's dying, the whole planet's dying. Uh, nothing's happening. And we're like, but there has, something has to happen. You know, you can't make a movie about nothing, right? And so we watch again, the next scene, the next scene, hour and a half comes. I want to say the movie finished. It didn't finish. It just stopped. <laughs> the, the credits start rolling, and you're like looking at my wife like, what was that about? I was like, that didn't make any sense. Did it make sense to you? I haven't got a clue what it was. What was the meaning of that? Why would the director, the producer, what's the meaning of it? I don't know what the meaning of it is. It's just absolutely meaningless and senseless. It, it, it didn't go to the movies. didn't go to the cinema. It went straight to Netflix for good reason, because I don't think anyone would pay 15 bucks to watch it, you know? Because we don't like those sorts of movies, do we? We don't like movies that just stop. We want to know, what was the point? We, we, we're creatures made in God's image. We, we want to know what's the purpose of stuff, don't we? Legitimately. And so, what about my life? What about your life? Is my life senseless? Is my life meaningless? Does my life have purpose? I reckon it's not just Netflix, Swedish or Finnish or Norwegian, whatever it was, movies. I reckon every philosophy and every religion is like that as well. Pointless, meaningless, senseless, everything outside of Christianity. I'm not going to inflict on you a philosophical talk, because some of you may have done philosophy and know more than me, but a few years ago now, 20 years ago, I was lecturing down in Otago just, just for a semester, so we just did all the stuff, all the stuff of a university town. There's lectures here, there, and everywhere, free stuff. There was a particular group that were giving a presentation on a particular topic, doesn't matter what it was, but I just wanted to go, I wanted to hear from those people that, that, that owned that worldview, I wanted to slip in, listen to it, and slip out rather anonymously. I, uh, I go to the room, find it, walk in, close the door, I swear I heard it lock behind me, it didn't, but, and the seats are in a circle. I'm already in trouble. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, so take a seat. This guy stands up, gives a talk, not on what was advertised at all. The talk was all about how awful you damnable Christians are. It's like, what? What the? What? Now, I should have guessed. Everyone, all the women were in crushed velvet. The men were all in skinny jeans. It wasn't the sort of, what is the vibe I was expecting? It was a different vibe. Turns out I'm in the Marxist club. <laughs> Marxism. A hundred million people died in the 20th century in the name of Marxism. It's not a good philosophy, people. All right? It's embarrassing. I'm like, there's only, the only Marxist clubs are on university campuses. I'm like, oh, gee, I'm in a row of, I can't slip out. And so this guy stands up, he talks, and it's just how awful we are, how intolerant we are, how, how horrible we are to society, how we're no good. We're pariahs, we're leeches. You, you, that's you he's talking about. And then, uh-oh, Everyone had to, in turn, respond to the talk. That's why we're in a circle. And so I'm quickly, I'm 18 out of 20 in the circle. Uh, and like the executioner's axe, it's going round. And so it's coming to me. I'm like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Now, I know you didn't ask me to represent you. You don't know me. But I did feel I had some duty to represent Christians and Christianity. Like, I, uh, I can't wimp out at this point. I've got to say something. So, so I stood up. I thought, what do I say? 
Um, I'm a reasonably fast runner, <laughs> so I'll say something. <laughs> so I stood up and said, look, my fundamental problem with Marxism, oh no, no, before I did that, I stood up and I said, look, I'm a, I'm a white, middle-class, Western male who teaches theology. I'm probably the person you hate the most. And they're like, oh. <laughs> so it's me and my people you've been talking about. Um, let me just say, the problem I've got with Marxism is this. You have no end game. You're all talk, but there's nothing behind it. You think that after cycles of revolution, where people will rise to power, and then people have to be, uh, be, be people who corrupt that power and, and bring it back down, and then it'll be a new cycle, and you go from this thesis to antithesis to synthesis, you just go round and round these cycles of oppression, because once you oppress people, and then they rise up, and then they become the bosses, then they just oppress the next group, and then that group has to rise up, and that's, that's your Marxist philosophy, until one day, somehow magically, like a rabbit out of a hat, utopia, it's all over, one world order, kumbaya, my Lord, we're singing circles, holding hands, doing a chorus, you think that in utopia, there'll be Buddhists, there'll be Christians, there'll be Muslims, there'll be shaman, there'll be uh, Wiccans, there'll be witchcraft, there'll be tax reform specialists, I don't know, and they're all there, and they're all just keeping their mouth shut, they're all just happily getting on with each other in this great utopia, you're kidding yourselves, you're fooling yourselves, let me just tell you about Christians, you cannot shut us up, no matter where we are, no matter when we are throughout history, the gospel is so important to us that we speak into power, where there's oppression, we're on the side of the oppressors trying to bring justice. When people are, are outcasts, we're with them. Who sets up hospitals? Who sets up social welfare? Who cares about people that nobody else cares about? Christians, Christians, Christians. We worship a God who took flesh, became human, became one of us, and was crucified, was murdered for his beliefs by the political regime. And he rose again on that third day, and he said to us, take up your cross daily and follow me, and by God we have, haven't we, for 2,000 years. So if you think we're in some utopia, us Christians, the church, and we're in some corner down the back end keeping to ourselves, you got another thing coming. Right? And I sat down. <laughs> now, it's 20 years ago. I don't know if I was as articulate as that, but that's my story, and that's how I choose to remember it. The leader of the group stood up and he started to engage me in a debate. And when I stood up and I was happy to have the debate, he had the good sense to think this is not going to end well. So he said, we need to adjourn the meeting. We've got very important business to do. Now, I'm, this is not preacher's hyperbole. I remember this like it was yesterday. I said to him, what, what, you, what, what business have you got? He said, we have to paint protest posters. I said, what are you protesting? Don't know. We haven't decided yet. No point, senseless, going nowhere, that's what's wrong with Marxism. But it's what's wrong with every philosophy. It's what's wrong with every religion. But Christians, we know where history's going, don't we? We know the meaning. We know the people. We don't know everything. We don't claim that. But we of all people know where it's all heading, don't we? And to answer where it's all heading, we've got to go back before we go forward, very briefly. So we go back. In the beginning, God speaks and creation comes into existence. Day by day, 
He forms and fills, forms and fills. At the end of each day, he says, this is good. Mud is good. Light is good. Water is good. Fish are good. The mundane, the physical is And then on that sixth day, he creates a creature. Male and female are the mud of the ground. He breathes his spirit into it and says this, this pinnacle of creation, this is my image in creation. And he says of Adam and Eve, of humans, this is very good. And I think we're supposed to say, when we read that text, when we, when we have it preached in church, I think we're supposed to say, very good for what? What are we good for? What does the creation narrative say we're good for? Don't, please don't say gardening. <laughs> Look, yes, I am middle-aged, but I don't like gardening. I mean, oh, not that much. Uh, we're, we're Adam and Eve created to live in a garden and have massive offspring, and those offspring just live in a garden and we cultivate trees. Really? Is that it? Is that the goal? Is that what I tell the Marxists? We were created to be gardeners. But sin mucked it up. So now we concrete things. I don't know, you know? <laughs> What were we created for? We have to go forward in time to Jesus. So Jesus comes, the eternal son takes to himself a human nature without ceasing to be God and becomes one of us. And we're told in scripture that Jesus Christ is the image of God. He is the image. He is the image of God in visible form. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. He says, I have come to speak the words the father gives me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Before Abraham was, I am. And so we go back to Genesis. What we were created for, well, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. God has no image, people. You know that. You've read your Old Testament. Every time they try to do color in picture of Jesus, they get condemned. Every time they build a golden a a calf or a, or a bull or an animal to represent God, they're condemned. You shall have no graven images of me. What about us? What does that mean? That's a contradiction. In light of Christ, Christ is the point. Adam and Eve were created to be like Christ because Christ pre-exists. He is eternal God. And God makes Adam and Eve and the rest of us in the image of Jesus Christ. And so we were created not to garden. We were created to be conformed to the image of Christ and not even Christ just in his first coming, but Christ ultimately in his resurrection. The Christ who will come again and make all things new. The Christ who has a resurrected body three days later after his death. As you see me go, I will come again, and the twinkling of an eye will make you like me. Now, we're starting to build a picture of what our end game is. It's to be like Christ, rightly related to God, rightly related to each other, rightly related to creation, and rightly related to ourself. And herein we find the genesis of the gospel, the good news. But when we focus, as we are a bit today, on what this ultimate goal is, it's not just Jesus, although that's awesome, but how, having given us Christ, can the Father not also give us all things, including a renewed heaven and earth? So what I want to do in the time that's left is just like a shotgun, <laughs> just throw some images at you and see what sticks. And you can buy my book afterwards for everything else that I don't get to. I want to just give you some images, and I want to just... Uh, uh, overwhelmed with enthusiasm so that you'll go back to Scripture, you'll go back into what God has said to us about what's to come because it makes a difference in how we live now. I want to read really quickly Colossians 3, 1 to 4. 
since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. So we're told to do this. This is a good thing. Where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here. For you died when Christ died. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed, you will share in his glory. Now, there's an end goal. That sense, that's meaning. That, that helps incredibly. Take that, Marxists. <laughs> Take that, Buddhists and Hindus and everybody else, actually. That is worth living, dying, and rising for. So, some images, if I can. The first image we're given about this life and the resurrection is this image of rest. It's mentioned throughout the New Testament. Hebrews is saturated in this language. Rest. But we've got the wrong view in English about rest. We think rest is inactivity. We think rest is, it's been a long winter, I want a Fijian holiday where I can lie in a hammock for a while drinking a cocktail, which would be lovely, wouldn't it? <laughs> but heaven is not lying on a hammock for all eternity. What sort of an end game is that? What sort of a goal is that? How boring would that be after an hour, five hours, a day? I don't know, it depends how tired you are, right? In Scripture, that's not rest. That's not what it means. It's contrastive. It's rest from something. So what is it rest from? Well, according to Paul, the Christian life is one in which we wrestle. He uses that. One in which we fight. One in which we strive against sin, against the flesh, against temptation, against everything that comes up against God and His will. You know that, right? I, I didn't meet. I heard of a pastor, can't, I, I almost can't believe this, uh, last month, who doesn't believe in sin. It's, it's the one thing everybody can believe in, right? Don't believe in sin, let me punch you in the face. I'm not going to punch you in the face. But, <laughs> but I mean, what? I'm 52, nearly. Next birthday, I became a Christian when I was about six at Sunday school, so I've been a Christian uh, for that, that many years, and uh, I do my best. I, I'm not the most godly person, I'm not the most, the most saintly person, I'm not the most spiritual person, I'm not the brightest person, I'm just me, I'm just what I am, and every day I say my prayers, and part of those prayers are, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me for what I've done today, and I might itemize what I've done every single day. Except those days where I say my prayers and I can't think of anything I've done wrong today. Those are my worst days. I just ask my wife and she tells me. <laughs> I'm just too ignorant to know it. Oh, did I really hurt such and such? Yes, you did and you have to say sorry. Wow. 40, 45 years I've been asking for forgiveness of sins and receiving it by God's grace. I'm tired. I'm, I'm sick and tired of it. I'm quite angry about it, actually. Every day, I am full of God's Spirit. I am in Christ Jesus. I'm seated in the heavenly realms. I have no excuse to sin, and I do, and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm in the fight, and I'll be in the fight tomorrow by God's grace and the day after. Don't get me wrong, but some of you have been Christians a lot longer than me, and every day you've chosen to follow Christ again. I want to hear your testimony. I want to spotlight you. How have you done it? 
for the joy that is set before us, Christ endured the cross, have the same attitude as Christ, who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, and God glorified him. Because there's meaning, because there's purpose. But people, I'm, I'm really tired. I hate sin. I hate it. I hate my sin. I hate being guilty. I hate being polluted. I hate having to come before Christ and the Holy Spirit again, grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm sick of it. And I'm sick of you. I'm sick of your sin and your sin and your sin because it affects me. Because when we bring sin into the camp in that Old Testament sense, we're all polluted. And then what about evil? If we just amplify it a billion times or six billion for every person on the planet. And so Russia attacks blooming Ukraine. Why? This is just ridiculous. And why is there oppression? And why are people starving? And why is, and you just go on and on and on and on. Are you sick of it? Are you tired of it? Does it, does it get your holy discontent up and you throw Well, just imagine in the resurrection. I don't know what days are like, but you wake up in the resurrection, first day. I'm going to do what God wants me to do today. I'm going to speak what he wants me to speak. I'm going to play what he wants me to play. I'm going to do what God wants. And at the end of the day, I come before him. And this is what I did. This is how I did it. This is what I said. And he says to me, Mike, well done. Isn't that awesome? Dot, 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 but. Wait, because, you know, well done, but. <laughs> no, no, no buts. Well done. Well done, Mike. You did what I wanted, how I wanted, when I wanted, to whom I wanted. Well done. No, no confession? No. Those liturgies are finished. Don't need forgiveness? Done. Oh, really? Re really? So I can do whatever I want because what I want to do is please the Lord. And I do. And I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And I'm going to do it again the next day. I'm going to do it again the next day. And I do it every single day of my existence. Does that, does that thrill you? That's rest, rest from oppression, rest from enemies, rest from sin, because God has judged it. The judgment is good news. No more tears, no more death, no more evil. It's gone. <sighs> Can you feel that weight get lifted? I'm in the fight now. Pray for me. But tomorrow, I'm in the fight. The next day, as long as I have breath, I believe I'm in the fight. And one day, the fight is over. I was preaching this at a church, and afterwards, this guy, <laughs> this guy comes, what was that sermon all about? Well, literally, marching across the... Uh, I'm, I'm a bit choleric, so I met him halfway. I said, what's wrong with you, mate? What was the point of that sermon? You don't often get asked your sermon proposition, except in preaching class. I said, the reason I'm preaching this is so that you people, good folks, my brothers and sisters in Christ, will leave this place wanting to go to heaven even more than when you came. He said, I thought so, and because of your sermon, I don't want to go to heaven. Well, yeah, talk about feedback, yeah. <laughs> now, in a moment, I, I, I really believe, in a moment of being filled with the Spirit, normally when the Spirit fills me, He shuts me up. Uh, at this time, I think He gave me something to say. I don't say this to many people. I don't know if I've ever said it to anybody, actually, apart from this person. But he goes, I said to him, why don't you want to go to heaven? Because if all you can do in heaven is the will of the Father, I don't want to be there. So I said to him, full of spirit, then you, my friend, are not a Christian. 
I mean, it's not normally our place to tell people who is and isn't Christian. That's Christ's place. Right, Pastor? But I did. Hmm. And he goes, I'm not, I'm an atheist. I said, well, that's why you don't want to go to heaven, isn't it? And so we had a 45-minute talk. Why are you here? Why are you at this church? Oh, I've been coming for six months. Why? Oh, my partner, she's a Christian. She drags me along. Yeah, but drags you along a week or two, six months, you know. And so we had a really good talk. It did not attract him at this point that he couldn't sin. It did not attract him that he could only, only do the will of the Father. He felt that violated his free will. Me and every Christian in history sees it differently. No, I am only truly free when in Christ, in the resurrection, without a sin nature, where evil is gone, I am now only free to do what God wants. Because God is beautiful. God's will is attractive. Doing God's will is life-giving. How do I know? We all know that, because we come into the present. Why do you do good works? Why do you work hard? Why do you come to church? Why do you give time and money and effort and energy? Why are you in the fight? Because God is beautiful. Because God is good. Because of the joy set before us. Yes, so I think I was right. I said to him at the end of 45 minutes, I said, brother, I think you are nearer to the kingdom than you could possibly imagine. And then I said, I'm going to pray for you and hope the Holy Spirit keeps you up at night for the next week. Uh, <laughs> don't know if he's a Christian yet, but I hope so. So we will rest. Cessation from all that opposes God. What will we do with this rest? We'll be super energized, right? Well, one of the things we'll be doing is cultivating culture and the cosmos. What on earth? Remember back in Genesis, God creates humans in his image, male and female, and he says, go forth and multiply and subdue the earth. Huh? What? They're supposed to garden now, not just a plot of land, but the whole thing. It just works. Go and take this Christian community, this covenanting community, take this society which you will create, which God is in the center of, and enlarge that around the globe. This is temple language in Genesis 1 or 2. This is priestly language. They were not created to garden, although that might be part of it. They were created to be priests of the world. What does a priest do? It represents people and things back to God. That's what they were created to do. And not just in some small part of Babylon or wherever it was, but enlarge that around the globe. Genesis 3, they sinned, they disobeyed. God expels them from the garden, puts an angel, a flaming sword, you can't come in. This is now reserved for some future time. Until then, thorns and thistles and death and all sorts of stuff. But through that, the gospel will come. Jesus comes in the fullness of time. And what does he promise? Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, the meek shall... Oh, very good. <laughs> the meek shall inherit the earth. What? <laughs> what? What does he mean? And almost that entire generation are slaughtered. They're martyrs. We read about that. Martyrs for their faith. And yet, through that oppression, the church grows. It spreads. It spreads from Jerusalem to Samaria to Acts 1.8, the ends of the earth, even, even New Zealand. <laughs> but we're still not inheriting the earth yet, right? 
I mean, this is a nice church, but, you know, I've seen better. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's right, I'm a church of 40. We're, we're tiny, so. What are we promised? What's the end game when we come to this cultivation of the cosmos? Behold, I saw the new Jerusalem come down from heaven and make its home where? Where? Here. Here. So I think we're better to talk about the final state as the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. Behold, I make all things new, says Christ. N.T. Wright says, he doesn't say, behold, I make all new things. I'm there, you're there, we're the same people, we're the same person, but we're renewed. And Scripture is very mundane when it talks about the future. Uh, when, when I was getting this book published, they sent me a cover, which was this close-up of a, a baby looking into the cosmos, into the stars, and I'm like, no, uh, th that person obviously hasn't read the book. No, 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 I don't want this other earthly ethereal nonsense, because you don't find that in Scripture. What we find in Scripture, there are trees, and there are rivers, and there are fruits, and there are feasts. The first sound we hear is the popping of a cork in the great wedding feast of the Lamb, where they're surrounded by people. We're surrounded by Abraham and Elijah. We're surrounded by Jacob and Mary. How do we know those people are there? Because it says they are. How will we know them? How will we recognize them? If they're disembodied souls, they just look like wafers. They look like water. They look, what the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? Jesus Christ goes up the mountain and he says, wait for me, watch for me. And then they're watching and suddenly two figures appear. Do you remember Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus starts to, to still human, but, but he glows brightly, glorious. And two people appear. Remember those two people? Can you remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? And then what do they say? We should build tents for those people. They're physical, they're material, they're there, they're recognizable. So away with this disembodied nonsense. That's Plato, that's Aristotle, I don't care about them. They probably weren't Christians. They certainly weren't good theologians. Scripture, all of its vision, all of its commitment is embodied and physical. What does God say about mud in Genesis 1? It is good. What does he say about mud, about physical? It is very good. Behold, I'm making all things new. What will we do with our energy? We'll be worshiping. God is at the heart of it. I don't know what worship will look like when it's unmediated like that. But we'll be talking with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll be enjoying their presence. We'll be coming before them. And again, sometimes when I preach this and afterwards I'm having conversations with people and they're like, yeah, I don't know if that's that enjoyable. I'm like, what? Why do you go to church? Why do you worship? Why do you do good works? C.S. Lewis helped me out here a bit. He's, he, he notices that in Scripture, uh, this, this future period is characterized by reward. Every time Paul talks about, about the Christian life and why you should be good and strive to be good, he says, because you will receive a reward. You ever notice that? Don't just run a race, says Paul. I don't care if you run a race. Whatever. Run to win and receive the prize. The good thing is I'm not competing with any of you. I'm not running against you. I'm running my own race. And I will complete that race with the grace of God, and I'm going to run it to win. What is this reward? C.S. Lewis gives us really good analogy. He says, why do kids learn music 
Why don't they learn to read music? Why don't they learn on the piano or whatever instrument to do their scales? And he said, it's hard and it's laborious at first and it's really difficult. My son uh, plays the trumpet. Um, I'm tone deaf, so I could never do it, but he's, he's flipping it. And he's hours practicing and reading music. Why is he doing that? He's doing that so that one day he will never have to play the trombone again. No, that, that was wrong, right? Why is he doing that? So that one day he can be in a band or 10 and he can play naturally, beautifully, creatively. I could wax eloquent about, I think jazz is one of the most theologically rich musical genres, but I won't. But, but you know, the idea of improvisation in music? I mean, I, I'm not musical, I just love music. But I, I go to concerts and I watch stuff and it's just these, these groups, you know, Bob Dylan's typical. He'll take a two and a half minute song of his and when he's in concert, it could go for 20 minutes. How? And how the musicians know? This is not pre-prepared. They don't practice that stuff. They're practicing music but they're not practicing a 20-minute song. And Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, this other group, they once toured with um, Bob Dylan. They were his tour group. And, it, and they were pretty good. But they said, reflecting on it, that he got, Bob Dylan got so angry with them because they'd get on stage and they'd try to play album-perfect music. He's like, I'm not interested. Every song, every time has a life of its own. Improvised people. You're like, wow. So we learn, we strive, we do stuff, because the reward is not doing something different, it's doing that that we were practicing. Let me give you my own illustration. I've got two kids, 15 and 13. Imagine the government tomorrow uh, decides to bring in uh, a new policy. For every child you get when they turn 21, the government will pay you a million dollars. Just imagine. Now, I said I've got a 15 and 13 year old. We're not planning to have any more children. Lord, we're not planning to have any more. The government brings in this new law and I have six more ch children, let's just say. When they get old enough to ask questions and they find out at uh, social studies, the government pays every parent a million bucks when their kid turns 21. They're going to come home and say to us what? My older brother and sister are 15 or 13 years older than me. Why did you guys decide to have six more children, including me? What do you reckon they're thinking? Well, we did it for the money, right? Why do you have children? Makes no economic sense. Makes no psychological sense. <laughs> Makes very little practical sense, actually. Uh, not unless they're nice and they look after you in your retirement. Why do we have children? For their sake. They're not a means to a different end. Oh, we had children so we could talk to people about family and have good sermon illustrations. What the? It's just really weird. We had children so that we would get to know them. We had children so we'll experience life with them. We had children so we can introduce them to God and all that means. We had children so that we can spend eternity with them. We had children and we work at children and we're tired and we're poor and we're angry sometimes. <laughs> we had them for the sake of having them. Reward in Scripture has to be the same. So what is the great reward in Scripture for being holy now? It's having more opportunity to be holy then. What, 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 what's the reward for good works that we do now? It's having more opportunity for more good works. What, what's the point of sacrificing now so that we will sacrifice more in eternity? You see, a lot of Christians, they're living this life, do I have to go to church? Do I have to tithe? 
Do I have to volunteer? Do I have to be? Do I have to? How, how little can I be faithfully to God and still be okay? It's like I'm a minister of the gospel. I marry people. Imagine pre-marriage counseling. We don't want to live together. We don't want to go on holiday together. We don't want to share life together. What? what? No, we just want to be married. So you want to be legally married, but you don't want anything that comes... Yeah, that's right. I'm not marrying you because you don't understand what marriage is. In Christianity... I want to go to heaven when I die, but I don't want to worship, don't want to read my Bible, don't want to fellowship with you guys, don't really want to commit too much. You're like, what do you think the rewards in heaven are? Does that make sense? So why are we in the fight? Why are we in the struggle? Because we do have the inbreaking of the kingdom now, and we get these glimpses, don't we, of victory. We get these glimpses of intimacy. We get these glimpses of what it will be. Church. Yeah? Didn't hear any amens there, Quinn. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so someone has said that talk about heaven is not just pie in the sky when you die, irrelevant to now. It's cake on your plate while you wait. And I think that's right. I really do. Whenever Christians are persecuted, no matter what time or place, what doctrine, what belief do they immediately go to? whether it's Christians during apartheid, whether it's Christians during any of the great wars, whether it's Christians in the civil rights movement, whether it's Christians in any time or place, what doctrine do they go to? Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And it does not remove them from what they're doing. That doctrine gives them the impetus to fight, the impetus to hope. It gives them the courage it gives them the conviction. It gives them the strength. The more we focus on this, the more present we are, according to Scripture. And I think that's true. I think that's right. Now, there's so much more I could say. I could throw a lot more at you, but buy my book. It's got all the answers. <laughs> Look, I do want to finish with two stories just to, to, to bring this home. A uh, famous rock group years ago, um, they put out a music video. Um, remember when MTV were doing these little um, half-hour music video things, all full of A-listers, and one of their roadies, one of their, his young, young child had died in a hit-and-run accident. So this, these guys wrote a song called August 7, 415. Never made it to the charts, not a very attractive song. Tell me it was just a dream, August 7, 415. God closed his eyes and the world got mean, August 7, 415. Really? Does God close his eyes at evil? Is that our worldview? Does God turn his back? Is God unconcerned? In the music video, it's torturous. It's bleak. Could be Scandinavian. <laughs> the, they're, they're, they're clearly desperate. They're clearly just distraught. And the wife just caves in on herself. And the husband in the video, he finds her journal. It's just scribbled, why, why, why? At a certain point, she turns on him. Where else can she turn? You, it's your fault. You should have been there. It's your job to pr protect our child. It's your fault. And he's powerless. Of course, it's not his fault. What can he do? He can't comfort her. He can't comfort himself. They're not Christians. There's no Christian worldview. Look, I want to say that video uh, came to a finish. It didn't. It just stopped after half an hour. August 7, 4.15. God closed his eyes and the world got mean. 
That's hopeless. That's senseless. That's true story. Christian couple. They had a young child. Um, well, let me start at the beginning. A Christian couple asked God, why would he allow their little child to live for two minutes and then die? He died of a chromosome abnormality. And they ask, as all parents would, how can a loving God do that? Where could they turn to make sense of this tragedy? Now, this is what I didn't say in the first service. I'll just fill it in with one, two sentences. They have an older child who dies at the age of two of a severe disability. And then they had a third child. Um, that's an act of faith in itself, isn't it? And that third child, at a very young age, comes to them at the breakfast table and says, I was talking to Toby last night. Toby died after two minutes. This kid has never known Toby. I was talking to Toby last night. I don't know what you would do. Hmm, tell us more. Yeah, Toby told me that he's uh, enjoying playing and working and doing jobs for God. Say what? And they just left it there, but clearly talked to themselves. And then a few days later, breakfast table, I was talking to Toby again last night. They went to Scripture. Is this biblical? Is this right? And so this is part of their story. They said, as far as we were concerned, the death of our small son was a design flaw and the designer was directly responsible. The doctor advised him to abort the baby when it was initially diagnosed and in an amazing testimony of faith, Susan, the wife, responded. She said, we believe God is the giver and taker of life. If the only opportunity I have to know this child is in my womb, I don't want to cut that time short. If the only world he is to know is the womb, I want it to be as safe as it can be. They left the medical center stunned. Susan said to her husband, pregnancy is hard enough when you know you leave the hospital with a baby. I don't know how I can go through the pain of childbirth knowing I won't have a child to hold. The parents obviously had prayed to God that if it was possible, would he heal their son? If it was not possible or wasn't part of his will, would he at least, at least let their child experience the breath of life? And that prayer was answered. The baby was born. They saw its little chest rise and fall, the breath of life, before he turned blue and passed away. Do you have a name for the baby? Asked the nurse. Toby, Susan replied, a biblical name short for Tobiah. God is faithful. <sighs> Don't know if I'd be as faithful. I hope so. Three months later, as I said, their elder daughter died just short of her second birthday. She was severely disabled and in desperation and agony and helplessness. And because of what their third child was now saying, they turned to Scripture for guidance. I mean, where else could you turn but the Word of God? And their attention was drawn to heaven. They saw that heaven is a place of intense activity, of work, of worship. They saw that heaven is our home that Jesus is preparing for those who love him. Marshall, the father, he wrote, what is clear is that heaven will be a place of active duty. Even after the ultimate spiritual battle is over, our responsibilities continue. He says, I can't be specific about how we will assist in reigning with Christ, but those tasks sound like they have more significance than most careers we pursue in our lifetimes. Could it be that when I finally start the most significant service of my life, I will find that this is that for which I was created. 
I may find I was created not simply for what I would accomplish on earth, but for the role I will fulfill in the renewed heavens and earth. He asks the question, why would God create a child to last for two minutes? It's a very good question. And he provides an answer after much anguish and searching of Scripture. He didn't. He doesn't. God created Toby for eternity. God created every man, woman, and child for eternity. Where for those in Christ, we may be surprised to find that our true calling, which always seemed just out of reach here on earth, is fulfilled there. As I finish, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Philippians. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be of Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And then, if he had a t-shirt company, this would have been on it. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The great American pastor and spiritual director Eugene Peterson commented once that amen is the last word in worship. It is, he said, the worshipping affirmation to the God who affirms us. It is appropriate then that amen should be the final word in a sermon on heaven, because heaven is the ultimate place of worship, where God is most fully God, and you and I will be most fully ourselves. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. We hope this teaching has served you well and that you've sensed something of God's voice speaking to you. If there's any way that we can help or pray for you, support you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. You can find out our contact info on our website at thewellnz.org or flick us an email at support at thewellnz.org. God bless you. We look forward to hearing from you soon.